time for re-engineering your finances with the founder of CP Weldy Group, Charles Weldy. It's another edition of Re-Engineering Your Finances, and we've got your questions on tap today. We're talking, of course, as always, with Charles Weldy, founder of CP Weldy Group. If you're new to the show, Charles serves you throughout the Delaware and Chester County areas with an office uh, in Chad's Ford, PA, on Route 52. You can find Charles online at cpweldygroup.com. Charles, we've lined up some listener questions today. You ready to tackle some of these? Absolutely. Let's, right. let's fire away. Very good. First one comes to us from Harold. By the way, if you want to submit a question to be featured on a future show, potentially, you can always do that at cpweldygroup.com. Harold says, I'm still working and plan to work for at least another two years, but I'm now old enough to start taking my Social Security without being limited on how much income I can earn. Is this a recommended strategy? All right. So, you know, it's, it's an open-ended question. I would just say this. If, uh, it sounds like he's a normal retirement age, which is 65, 66 for most people. So if he's 66 and he has unlimited earnings, is it a good strategy? Well, if he t- I, I would say this. If he takes the uh, Social Security at 66, his normal retirement age, and uh, passes away at 69, it was a very good strategy. But if he takes it at 66 and lives to 90, it might not be a very good strategy. And the reason being is that every year that, you know, this, uh, who was it, Harold? Every year that Harold delays, his Social Security benefit goes up by 8% a year. So I would obviously uh, see what other assets that he has investment-wise. I would see what his lifestyle is. I'd see what his health is. And, you know, I, I wouldn't just carte blank say, hey, yeah, you know, take it at 66. It's a good strategy. Um, based on other factors, I might have him wait, you know, and he doesn't have to necessarily wait till 70. He can just take one year at a time, but I definitely would probably lean towards having him wait and delay it if he was in pretty good health. And by that, I mean, Walter, that his life expectancy was, um, you know, maybe 83, 84 or more. Okay, very good. So uh, an important question for a lot of people to ask is how to handle their Social Security. And when you're still working, that can throw in some additional complications. So smart of you, Harold, to start thinking about those kinds of consequences. And uh, great question. If you have similar questions about Social Security or something else related to your financial life, you can always reach out to Charles easily by calling 610-388-7705. We don't have to ask your question on the show. You can just have a one-on-one conversation with Charles. That is 610-388-7705. Randall has our next question. Randall says, as I've researched different financial licenses and designations, it seems that many of them are similar, but they also have their differences. Is there a particular license or designation I should be looking for when working with an advisor? Well, I mean, I look at that question and I say, all right, um, if I were a consumer, what would I look for? I think, you know, the gold standard in the industry is a CFP, Certified Financial Planner. Why is that? Well, there's over 270,000 financial advisors in the United States, but there's less than 31% of them have the CFP, Certified Financial Planning designation. Uh, I myself took it, uh, gee, like 18 years ago. Uh, I challenged the exam. I was a CPA, and you could challenge it. And I remember studying, I'm not kidding you, 128 hours over uh, six weeks to you know, pass the exam. It was very, very challenging. And uh, I would just say that if someone goes through that uh, training and you know, passes the CFP and gets that as a designation, that's probably uh, a good starting point for a financial advisor. That's a great point, Charles, and um, uh, interesting to think about that, yeah, because it is an alphabet soup of designations out there, isn't it? 
Oh, it's amazing. I mean, I, I remember years ago, I mean, even myself, I'm a CPA, CFP, CLU, CHSC. I mean, you know, I had to drop my middle initial, you know, <laughs> not really. But uh, my point, my, yeah, my point is, you like, just you replaced know, it with all the other letters. Right? Yeah. But, you know, I, I mean, I just really focus on the CPA and the CFP, you know, a strong tax background, a strong financial planning background. To me, they're, they're the gold standards. And I get that. You know, you can be a great certified financial planner without being a CPA, but it just so happened that was the route that I traveled, CPA first and then a CFP secondly. But yeah, there's a lot of designations out there and some of them aren't really worth the paper they're written on. One that I remember uh, seeing was um, a certified senior advisor. You know, I mean, I don't know what that is, but, you know, open book test and, you know, you don't have to uh, do a lot. And I think most uh, organizations compliance organizations that is uh, you know don't even allow you to use it anymore interesting yeah i've seen some uh, designations over the years and then looked into the back end of what it takes to receive that designation and some of these you can essentially folks pay for like they're, they're kind of uh, i don't want to call it a made-up designation but i don't know maybe that's what it boils down to it's just meant to kind of sound fancy but you can essentially pay for it take an easy test over the weekend and boom now you can call yourself you know, an expert in some in some realm, and it's, it's kind of interesting and a little silly that that's uh, that's that easy to do in some cases. But yeah, CPA and uh, CFP they aren't faking. That takes a lot of work to get those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll I'll just end this uh, you know this question with uh, kind of like a tongue in cheek uh, you know uh, joke. But you, do you know what CPA stands for, Walter? Uh, certified public accountant, is that right? Well, you know, that's one way of looking at it. The other way is couldn't pass again, right? <laughs> and do you know what CFP stands for? No, what, what, what's that one? Can't find people. Can't find people. Interesting. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of people that are highly educated that, you know, aren't out there, you know, um, building their practice, you know, because they're more concerned about learning. But at some point, you got to get out there and actually share your your learning skills with your, you know, clientele. So, um, you know, just a tongue in cheek, uh, ending to that, you know, CFP, CPA designation. That's a little, little, little bit funny. Ha- having trouble working with folks. So I'll just go uh, pass some more tests. There you go. <laughs> not saying that that applies to all CFPs, but yeah, I, absolutely I understand that's probably a little, uh, background industry humor there. So I, I think people will get that for sure. Too funny. All right. Uh, let's get to another question here from Katrina. Katrina says, my husband isn't inclined to do any retirement planning because he says he'll just keep working. Is this mindset okay? I guess I'm just worried about what happens if he can't keep working, even if he wants to. Well, you know, in an earlier podcast, we talked about longevity risk. And obviously, the longer you work, you know, the less longevity risk, you know, comes into play. I mean, if you retired at 65 and lived to 85, you know, longevity risk is 20 years. You, you work till 75 and you live to 90, longevity risk is now only 15 years. But the key is that, you know, we, we don't have this crystal ball that we're always going to be in the greatest of health. And, you know, at some point in time, whether we choose to or not, we may be forced to leave that job. We may, our health issues might you know, dictate that we can't do what we used to do, you know, over and over again. So even though someone loves what they do and plans on working for the remainder of their life, they have to plan for, you know, the inevitable day that could come that, you know, guess what? Can't work anymore. I have to live off my social security check. And if I'm fortunate enough to have a pension, great. But what's the income gap that I need to, you know, uh, replenish each and every month to, you know, keep my lifestyle, maintain my lifestyle. So I think, um, you know, the wife, you know, has a... uh, 
strong, you know, consideration uh, to worry about. I mean, you know, we're all not going to live forever and we can't all work forever. Uh, so I think it's always good to have a plan B, you know, what if, you know, and uh, there's definitely uh, a certain amount of capital that's going to be needed in the event that that job's not there anymore. Yeah, a uh, neighbor across the street uh, when I was growing up, Charles, um, an older guy, but still had a lot of zest in life and, uh, you know, sharp as a tack. And physically, he was in great shape, and he was a roofer for for a living. He owned a small business, and he, he you know, cleaned. I think eventually it turned into where he just cleaned roofs instead of actually installing them just as, as age, you know, caught up to him. But into his 90s, he was still climbing on the roof every single day at his clients' houses, power washing, power washing roofs, cleaning them off, uh, doing, doing small repair jobs, all that kind of stuff. I mean, the guy just kept going. And some people have that ability, and I don't think he needed to do it as much as he just enjoyed, you know, his work and getting up on top in the sun and, and, you know, soaking it all up and being up high. And ladders didn't bother him at that point after doing it for so many years, you know. And he was able to for a really long time. But you can imagine what if something had happened and he still wanted to be up there but hadn't been able to for then the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, you know, he could have been in in bigger financial trouble not having all that extra income coming in. That's why we need plan B, you know, obviously, just in case. That's a great point. So good question. Thanks for that one, Katrina. Uh, Over to Barrett. Barrett says, I'm worried about what 2021 will bring after how crazy last year was. Is there a way I can stay out of the craziness of the market and still get prepared for retirement? Well, I mean, staying out of the market, you know, my assumption is, does that mean staying out of stocks or staying out of stocks and bonds? I mean, I'll I'll assume the assumption is staying out of stocks. And, you know, really, I would just say for most people, you know, we talk about inflation uh, on an earlier podcast. I mean, you need to be in stocks, I believe, in order to have an inflation hedge, because if inflation is treadline 3% and fixed income as a proxy is 3%, you know, you're not really, you know, keeping ahead of inflation. You're basically just maintaining, you know, your purchasing power. And I think, you know, people need to grow their purchasing power. So even though 2020 has been, I don't know, I mean, you know, it sounds like for him, it's been an up and down year. It's been an up year for a lot of people. And I think the danger is that, you know, the stock market doesn't go up forever. So, um, you know, I think if you, again, get back to that bucket planning concept and have your assets located in now, soon and later categories, uh, you're going to be able to uh, enjoy current income, uh, hopefully have your later income grow over time and uh, maintain your liquidity with your now money. So um, I think there's no way to uh, you know take the market out of your planning. I think people need to be in the market. That's a fantastic point. And another good question. Thanks for that, Barrett. You're not in the, uh, the, the, you know, the only person in that boat of not wanting to repeat 2020 in any way, shape, or form, <laughs> um, especially the ups and downs. I mean, yeah, at the end of the year, it ends up being an up year, but I know the roller coaster ride to get there was unnerving for a lot of people who weren't prepared for it. And if that's still the case for you, Barrett, unprepared for that up and down ride and whether it's appropriate for your situation and the amount of risk that you're taking, go check out our previous episode of the podcast. We talk about risk and the different types of it, and uh, that could be very educational for you. And as always, you can reach out to Charles Weldy if you have some uh, more questions or want to get into the specifics of your situation. 610-388-7705 is the number, or cpweldygroup.com. Ellen says, we have the opportunity to refinance our house, Charles, at a lower interest rate. But the problem is that it would be a 15-year mortgage, and we only have five years left to pay now. We're 60 years old, and the idea of still having a house payment until we're 75 seems like it's a bad idea. What do you think? 
Well, I mean, I get this question a lot, and I think there's no right or wrong answer, Walter. I think uh, it's more emotional than economic. I mean, you know, obviously, they have to have a little bit more information, but, you know, they could take a 15-year mortgage and pay it off in five years. You know, the question is, what's their mortgage balance? You know, it probably isn't really that high. So, you know, maybe they just continue to, you know, maintain their mortgage and pay it off in five years. Maybe they have adequate assets invested to sustain, you know, 25, 30 year retirement. If that's the case, um, uh, you know, certainly they could, you know, take some money out and pay the mortgage off. You know, that's a possibility. So, I mean, I don't really have like enough information to, you know, really feel comfortable saying, yeah, pay it off or no, you know, refinance for 15 years or, you know, uh, item C, continue your mortgage. It really depends on, you know, the account balance, you know, the principal balance rather their current interest rate, you know, what they have in their investments and what their lifestyle is. So once you gather all that information, the decision becomes a lot easier. And rather than me tell them what they should do, I generally will ask them, here's the advantage, here's the disadvantages of both, you know, taking a mortgage out or continuing with your mortgage or paying it off, you know, and get their feedback as to what they want to do once they have all the information. All right, Charles, uh, another good question here from uh, Steve. Steve says, I have a variable annuity that seems to have a nice income guarantee associated with it. But I've heard several people say that variable annuities are a bad idea. What am I missing? Well, I mean, I don't think he's missing much of anything. I mean, there's there's good annu- variable annuities, bad variable annuities. There's good stocks, bad stocks, good fixed income, bad fixed income. I mean, I would just say this. I mean, based upon my background and education, I would say if the variable annuity... Uh, has an expense ratio, you know, 2% or less, it's probably, you know, not a bad investment because generally speaking, most people are paying uh, more than a half a point do-it-yourselfer. I think I just read something at Vanguard saying the average portfolio, 57 basis points. What that means, it's a little more than a half a percent for a do-it-yourselfer. Um, variable annuities have like guarantees, whereas most of them, when you pass away, if your account balance is less than you know, what your principal was that you put in and what the growth was, they actually refund that difference to you. So there could be advantages to having a variable annuity. I would just say that, you know, if the, and I, I really am a big expense guy, if the expenses are north of 2%, it might not be that great, but it might not be bad. If it's 2% or less, it's probably, you know, okay in terms of the industry standard. It's not too pricey and it's not too cheap. It's kind of like, okay. So I don't know if that, you know, (laughs) sheds any more light. You know, that variable annuities can be a a decent investment. They're not all bad and they're not all good. Yeah, it's a really good point, I think. And uh, never view them as as good and bad. They're tools, right? I think we've used that analogy before on the show. Charles, since this is re-engineering your finances, right? Like there are no bad tools out there. You just might be using the wrong tool for the wrong job. Yeah let, yeah, let me give you an example. So if I had a client come in and they had to be in the stock market, but they were definitely afraid of being in the stock market, but I knew that three is not going to do it for them, more like a six or seven is what they need long term, then a variable annuity might be a potential solution because it gets them into the market and it makes them put their head on the pillow at night and they sleep a little sounder knowing they have these guarantees. So, you know, one size doesn't fit all. A variable annuity can be you know, a good tool for certain people. But I think they get a bad rap because a lot of people think that they're loaded with fees. And my, you know, experience indicates that if the fee is 2% or less, it's probably, you know, not a bad variable annuity. 
Yeah, that's another uh, another great example. I like that. Steve, good question. Uh, definitely worth getting that looked at and discussing it further, though. And uh, we'll give you contact information at the end of today's show. But let's get one more question in here. Charles, this one's from Teresa. And Teresa says, what's your opinion of flipping houses as an investment strategy? Well, I mean, my initial thought process is, hey, it's easier said than done. I mean, I don't have a construction background. I've seen people do it. I've seen people be successful at it. I've seen people be unsuccessful at it. And I would just say that the one thing I've learned is that the profit from this investment strategy of flipping houses is really made in the purchase of the, the property. So you have to buy it at a deep enough discount you know, and factor in your improvements. And then when you sell it, generally speaking, you're going to have a capital gain. So you got to factor that into it. And capital gains rates generally are 15% at the federal level. And here in the state of Pennsylvania, maybe another three. So 18% of your profit disappears. You know, uh, you got to, you know, definitely buy it at a deep enough discount and be strategic on the improvements that you make to it. And I think that you can be successful at it. Uh, on the other hand, I've had clients that tried it and uh, they bought in the wrong area. You know, they underestimated their fixing up costs and they can't wait to get rid of it. And some of them are having a tough time getting rid of it. So is it a uh, investment strategy um, that's something that I would embrace? Probably not. But I would not say that there aren't people out there that are doing it successfully. It's just that, you know, I don't think the people that are watching uh, infomercials at two o'clock seeing these real estate people on TV uh, are doing it maybe the proper way. Yeah, you can't go by what you just see off of TV, right? TV is is constantly faked, especially those home improvement type shows. I mean, like my bubble was bursted in House Hunters when I found out that the couple has already actually chosen the home before they make the TV show in almost every case. And it's all, it's all just for show their comments on considering which one it's all fake. And a lot of that same kind of stuff happens during a lot of those reno shows and flipping shows. So you got to take all of that with a humongous grain of salt. They make it a lot easier looking, even when they try to make it look hard, like there's problems and issues that pop up. (laughs) They they still make it look easier than it is. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, it's a lot of work to make a profit. And again, I've always you know, been trained and I really believe this, that the profit is really made in the purchase price of that particular property. Because uh, if you buy it, you know, uh, at a premium, uh, you know, you're not going to make a profit. That's a great point. Just like buying stocks, right? The, the purchase price is, is almost, if not more important than the, I mean, obviously the sell price is important, but if, yeah, you, but, you, know, that, if that's, you buy that's high, a, then it's going to be hard to sell high, well, right? Well, that's, that's a really a good concept. Think about it. Like there's people that bought Apple at the all-time high and they might not be happy with it. And there's people that bought Apple at an all-time low and they're thrilled with it. They both own the same stock, but their emotions are totally different. Why? Because they had different entry points. So that's a good point. It really depends on, again, like stocks are long term. The only point I wanted to make with this, Walter, is that you could have two people owning the same exact investment with totally different uh, emotional responses, depending upon when they bought it. So yeah, it could yeah. come down to timing, could yeah. come down to how much you like flipping houses and what your age is, Teresa, because if you're in your 20s or 30s, then yeah, I mean, I guess you've probably got some energy and, and zest and time to make those things work. But if you're in your 60s and 70s, is that what you really want to be doing in your retirement? Exactly. Yeah. All great questions. And again, the way to get in touch with Charles, if you want to talk more about your particular situation or you have something on your mind, call 610-388-7705, 610-388-7705, or go online to cp 
WeldyGroup.com. That's CPWeldyGroup.com. And we'll put the contact info in the description of today's show. Really enjoyed the show with you today, and we'll look forward to doing another one with you soon. Thank you, Walter. Happy New Year. You too as well. That's Charles Weldy. I'm Walter Storholt. We'll talk to you next time right back here on Reengineering Your Finances. Financial planning and advisory services are offered through Prosperity Capital Advisors, PCA, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Registration as an investment advisor does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The CP Weldy Group and PCA are separate, non-affiliated entities. PCA does not provide tax or legal advice.